Take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. While you're turning there, um, for the home fellowships tonight, um, for the ones that are leading, I do have a paper with suggested like questions and things for, uh, to help lead with the discussion. If you're interested, you can see me afterwards and I'll give you a, a copy of that. Also on page um, 14 in the bulletin, I told you that there would be another book recommendation coming dealing with uh, a lot of the current issues that uh, our society and country are facing. So that is this one. Uh, it's called Five Lives of Our Anti-Christian Age. It's written by Rosario Butterfield. Um, pretty much anything she writes is like really good. Um, and uh, in fact, it's not exactly written on the level uh, for a middle schooler, but Kids that are going to camp are reading this for credit this year. Um, we're trying to get them to work through that book and understand uh, the things that she writes about. It's, it's just really well written. Um, it does deal with many of, this, uh, of the issues that I mentioned in the last book, which was a secular book dealing with, I guess, pretty much just the, the, uh, uh, the issue itself and the facts behind the trans movement and the, the push to get, to get what they call affirming care, what's really behind that, and what is affirming care, what does that mean, uh, and looking at the truth uh, of that, because it's, it's not good. It can't, that can be a very difficult book to go through, just because of how it describes what the uh, treatments do to individuals, both psychologically and physically. Um, it's very difficult to work through in that sense, because it's very, you can see the trauma that it brings on people. But this is obviously clearly written from a position of, of a person who's a believer and what the scripture says. I guarantee you, you will not regret getting this book and reading it. So I do highly recommend that you get this book and read it. Um, it will be very, very profitable in helping you to have a, a, a better and a very biblical understanding of what's going on and why and how we can better biblically think through these things uh, in a way that honors the Lord, and as always, the goal is to be focused on the truth and, and what the truth is. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful for your love for us, grateful, Father, for your consistent presence in our life. We thank you, Father, that you continually watch over us and how you provide for us. Father, we really can never thank you enough for that, and, and we, we just want to acknowledge that as we bow before you. Part of our desires we worship you is to give you the glory the honor the credit the reverence the respect that you deserve and part of that father is our expressing to you that we are so grateful uh, because father we know that uh, we are those who have lived in rebellion we know lord that we are those who are undeserving of your kindness and your goodness and yet lord you overwhelm us with your goodness and we know lord that every good thing we have does come from you um, Sometimes it's a little difficult for us to really grasp what it means for you to be God and how everything comes from you and is dependent upon you. Uh, but Father, as we grow in our understanding of that, uh, our hearts continually grow in gratitude for your faithfulness in every way. Father, as we always do, we ask for your blessing on our time as we continue our way through the book of Matthew. And we pray, Lord, again, that you will instruct us and you will broaden our thinking and that our thinking will also continue to become more biblical and centered on God and the truth. Help us, Father, to be able to uh, grow in not only our understanding of your word, but being able to use your word as, as a template 
as we think about the world around us. And also, Lord, as a guide to enable us to think logically and rationally about life. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth and giving us the truth and setting us free from the error that so easily besieges us. And as always, we thank you again, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This is where what we normally refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Some individuals would say that it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. I really don't think it matters all that much as to what you call it, but it is what we are very familiar with. And he says in verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, in connection with what we talked about last week as we looked at these things that Jesus was warning against, things like praying to be seen, using many words to manipulate or maybe better God up to get what we want or what we want him to do, uh, the, using, the using of maybe certain kinds of words or language to make us sound more spiritual or to make us more godly. Um, you know, there's the warnings against that. When you read through this prayer, you'll notice that this prayer is not pretentious. It's not man manipulative. It's not verbose. Uh, this prayer serves as a model for us in our praying. It's an example. It's a guide for prayer. Nowhere does Jesus say we should recite it. It's not a sin to recite it, but uh, I just, my personal belief is that when we recite prayers, often the depth of the meaning of those prayers begins to fade and we can recite it almost like a good luck charm not everybody does that uh, but this is but reciting this prayer is not a substitute for praying right imagine if you have a conversation with your wife or your husband and several times a week when you have a discussion they recite something to you they've memorized but that's supposed to be the substitution for the conversation. So they recite it, and then they leave. Like, what are you doing? Well, I'm talking to you. No, you're reciting, you memorize that. Well, yeah, it's really good. And then you leave. And then two days later, you recite it again. It just would seem, it's an odd way of looking at it, because prayer is part of this communication in our relationship with, with, with God. Uh, so again, it's not wrong for us to teach this to our children. It's, again, it's not wrong for us to memorize this. And I'm not going to say that it's wrong for us to pray this. But if we do, make sure that you are praying this. And uh, again, he's already given us the warning about you know, being repetitive. Uh, and so I just think we just need to heed that. So I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, at the same time, I am trying to awaken us. Um, if we are, you know, happen to be in kind of this, maybe a, a rut where we are doing things automatically without thinking, maybe thinking we're being spiritual or thinking we're pleasing God. And I'm really not sure that that's what we're doing when we do that. So we want to look at this. What is he trying to communicate to them when he gives them this prayer? What is it he wants them to think about? So keep in mind that, that when Jesus is teaching this, 
He is speaking to a very religious group of individuals. Many of them have much of the Old Testament memorized. That, that, that's how that was their educational system. When they would begin to go to school at a very young age, whether it's four or five or six, you only had one class. It was the reading and the studying and the memorization of the Old Testament. There was nothing else. You would do that until you were somewhere between 10 and 12. Every year, that's what you would do. The reason for that was this belief that no matter what you did in life, whether you were going to be a fisherman or an engineer or work construction or whatever, character and godliness was the one trait that was the most important thing. More important than whatever the skill level was. And so you needed to have that under your belt. And so by reading and studying and memorizing the Old Testament, which is the Word of God, that's what they had, by the time you were that age, 12, you were, you, your personality was then molded and shaped. Your, the way that you would think about things, the way you would approach life, would be solidified in what the Word of God had to say. And you were now ready to begin to interact with the world, learn whatever these skills were as far as the direction you were going to go in in your life, and you'd be well prepared. So that was the reason for that. It wasn't, they weren't trying to create zealots. Uh, they weren't trying to uh, create uh, a group of, of fanatics. To them, this was the normal way of looking at life. And it's very difficult to find a flaw with that. What, what most individuals recognize in our society when it comes to um, just, just trying to get employees, people to work for you, what's the number one issue? Character. Will they come to work? If they come to work, will they work? You know, I mean, there's all these kinds of things. There's employers all over. They're, 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 they're having a very difficult time uh, with that. Finding someone who's willing to work. And then if you, and if you can find someone who's willing to work and they actually show up to work, it's hoping they don't want to argue about the work. You know, it's this, you just want them to accomplish whatever's before you. Uh, my daughter-in-law is uh, in some kind of management deal with uh, Chick-fil-A, and you know, they hire a great number of people. Uh, but the problem they have is they're hiring people all the time because people are quitting all the time. They come in and realize they have to work hard, and two days later or a day later or during the shift, they're gone. You know, it's just, and it's, it's not just in a few places, it's all over. All right, so there's, there's a problem somewhere. So this group of individuals that Jesus is talking to they're well-versed, so they're always, so in a sense, they're always going to be thinking really biblically, all right? They didn't call it the Bible, all right? But they're going to be thinking biblically in terms of, of that. So this is, so Christ is appealing to that. So the prayer begins with our Father. It's a very simple reminder of one thing, of this intimate relationship we have with God. That's what it's a reminder of. He is our Father. Uh, in that term, uh, it expresses both closeness and respect. Okay, so when I speak to my father, I have never referred to my father as the old man. Right? To me, that would be disrespectful to, to do that. I, I'm unable to do that. Um, uh, there's, so, there's this, so there's a closeness, because he's my dad, but I also have this respect for him. Uh, because he is my dad and because of his life and all that. So, there's, so that's what's there. There's other men that I know that are my dad's age. I don't call them dad. I don't call them father. 
Right? If there was now, if there was another man in my life that maybe was like a fatherly figure, I might, because I care for them or love them, might call them that. But but I had a very good father, and so I, I never went looking for or had that kind of a relationship with someone else. So that's the idea here with this. Uh, when you look at other religions, people don't refer to God as if they believe in God, depending on what the religion is. They don't refer to God as their father. Right? That, that idea of having that, that kind of a relationship with, with who God is is foreign to them. So we have this relationship with God. This is our assurance that God is going to hear us, that God's going to answer us. It, again, that's implied by the pronoun our. It is, it is we, our brothers and sisters. We are in a spiritual family, and we are under and related to the same Father. That's all that's in that word. All those things are kind of wrapped up in that. So he begins by saying, hallowed be your name. Most of us are familiar with what that means. It's, it's basically you know, the honoring of God's name. The idea is that we are asking God to ensure that nothing threatens his reputation for holiness. That's really what we're asking. We're not just saying, just may your name be honored. What does that mean when we say, may your name be honored? Who's going to make sure that happens? Well, it's God. He's the one who's sovereign. All right, so we recognize who God is. We also are very much aware that God is not honored by many individuals. Remember that, a, that individuals who are not believers are refusing to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are living in rebellion to who God is and what God has said. That's what that means. That's, that's, that's how they live their life. So God's name is not honored in that person's life, in that family's life, or it may be in the community life or broader. And so what we are asking here, because this is a prayer, we're asking for God's name to be hallowed. We're asking for God to ensure that nothing threatens his reputation for holiness. After doing a lot of reading and studying on this through the years, and in particular recently, I believe that what he's asking for here, you can kind of divide the prayer up in half, or in, in, in two parts. And the emphasis here, this is not an individual request. It's not what this is. This is not where we are asking God to make sure that we are honoring his name. That kind of slips underneath this, but that's not what the emphasis is. It is asking that God's name be, so I'm not asking that God's name be reverenced by me personally. I believe it's bigger than that. It's a much broader thing. It's, it's, it's to have what we are, it's to give to us a different perspective. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 36. Many believe that this phrase, hallowed be in thy name, alludes to Ezekiel 36. And remember now that when Jesus is teaching to the Jewish people, they do think in terms of the Old Testament. They relate everything they hear to that. They are thinking that Jesus is he's like a rabbi. So they expect everything to have a religious foundation in what he says. They expect that. So they are thinking this way. So this is not some far-fetched thing where, we were, you know, someone is addressing a group of individuals at a baseball stadium and you start referencing the scripture and they have no idea what you're talking about. There is an expectation that what he says will always be linked to the scripture. So, we, so when, we, when we study the New Testament, and especially when we study the life of Jesus, we want to try to think in those terms, right? The, where the assumption is, is that when he speaks to the Jews, uh, or to the Jewish people, there's this religious undertone to everything. It's all related to the Old Testament. If it wasn't, they would have rejected him outright. You didn't have individuals running around um, 
kind of doing the Tony Robbins thing where you kind of just do motivational speakers. That's not what they were. They're not looking for that. Uh, they're already motivated. What they're looking for is understanding, understanding of, of the scriptures, understanding of what that means for me today, that type of thing. So Ezekiel 36, beginning verse 22, says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the people of Israel were very familiar with their history and God's judgment against their nation. This, remember, they have this memorized. They know this. And they know that God's holy name is of great importance to God. This is who God is. God is holy. He has appointed the nation of Israel to represent him and to instruct others about who God is and his nature. So then when the nation of Israel messes up, this is not just some nation that's making moral mistakes. This is a nation who is, in their immorality, are communicating to others that God doesn't care about morals. That God is no different than their pagan deities. God is not happy with that. And so he tells them, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not doing it for your sake, I'm doing it for mine. When God would bring a nation in to, to, to judge Israel, that was for his sake. When he would deliver Israel and be merciful, that was for his sake. So he would show others that he was kind and merciful, that he would keep his promises. It's all for him. He was not beholding to Israel. In the same way, we know that, that God is not beholding to us. Right? We are beholding to him. Uh, but God is going to act according to his nature. Now, the good news is that God is a benevolent, kind, loving being. That is, that's his nature. So that when he acts consistent with his nature, because we are his children, we get the benefits of that. Right? So it's a good thing. But that's, that's who this is, and that's what's going on. So this passage refers then specifically to God acting to honor his name as holy, and that is paramount. So this then request actually makes all the sense in the world. So the idea is, is that you kind of back up from where this individual is not just, you're not praying for yourself, you're looking at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that God's name needs to be honored. So just think about this for a moment. If God's name, that means who he is, okay? It's not just the name, like, you know, his name is Yahweh. You know, it's not a superstitious thing. It's, for, it's because of who he is. So, that, so when we say if God's name is honored, that means God is being honored. So think about our nation as a whole. If you could wave a magic wand, take more than that, but if you could wave a magic wand, and starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., instantly, every public servant and politician, which would mean this would be the most massive miracle on the planet, if every politician woke up and had 100% committed themselves to making sure that God's name is honored, do you think our country would be different? There's no doubt. No doubt at all. If suddenly, tomorrow at 6 a.m., the entire planet was committed to that, do you think it would be different? Well, we know it would be. 
There would be no wars. There would be, there would be no gangs. There would be no drug trafficking. There would be no sex trafficking. There would, be no, there, would be, there would no longer be loan sharks taking advantage of individuals who make bad decisions. There would, all that would be done. It would be gone. Life would be awesome. It would be incredible. It, it would be peaceful. Imagine driving downtown Savannah and you, take, you want to take your spouse out to eat and you park your vehicle, just leave the keys in the car and leave your car unlocked. And fully expecting that when you're done, you'll come back and your car will still be there and it hasn't been ransacked. Man, that would be awesome. That would be incredible. I live next door to the church. I lock my house every time I leave the house. If Cindy's home, I lock it. Saw a movie once about a guy breaking into a house when the wife was home alone. It, 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 I was 10 years old. Ever since then, it's not just because I was a jail chaplain. House is locked. All right? If they want to get in, it's going to, have, it's going to take a few minutes. All right? So there's a warning. All right? But that's what I do. That just, it's automatic. It's habit. I go, if I go visit somebody out in the country where they have no neighbors, or when I get in my car, I lock it. Why am I locking it? Is a cow going to come and take my car? There's no one there to take it. Right? But it's a habit because of the world that we live in. But imagine living in the world that would be different from that. That's the idea behind this. This is what we're asking God to do. So we are, we are really, in a sense, thinking future. This, I want to see that day come. This is what we're asking God to do. So in Ezekiel, God's people had profaned his name among the nations because of their sin. Their sin had led them to being, expo- to being expelled from the promised land. This exile, many, this exile of Israel prompted many to conclude that God had broken his promise to his people. So again, for the sake of his holiness, for the sake of the holiness of his name, God's going to cleanse the people of impurity, of idolatry. He would transform his sinful people by giving them a new heart and place his spirit within them. He was going to gather Israel from the nations and return them to the promised land. He was going to make their devastated land into a beautiful paradise like Eden. That's what it means when you ask for God's name to be hallowed. God accomplishes the promised transformation of his people through Jesus Christ. It's going to be inaugurated, uh, the, the inauguration of the new covenant by his death, which again, what does he say in Matthew 26? He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this new covenant, which is, which is more than just our salvation, it, it encompasses basically the future history of the world. That's what we're asking God to do. So this first petition is a prayer for God to fulfill his promises to his people so that his holiness will be beyond question. Secondly, he says, your kingdom come. He, this here, we are asking for the consummation of the kingdom that was inaugurated with the arrival of Jesus. In fact, there's an important uh, Jewish prayer that's called the Kaddish. Uh, in Aramaic, that word means sanctification. It's a sanctification of God's name or the honoring of God's name. Uh, in the Hebrew language, this Kaddish is related to the Hebrew word holy. Uh, this prayer is recited at funerals. Um, but it can only be said if there's at least a quorum. What they mean by that in the Jewish community is there's at least 10. In fact, if you have a Jewish village, the only way you can have a synagogue is you've got to have a quorum. You've got to have 10 men. If you have that, then you can have a synagogue. And so in a funeral, if you have a Jewish funeral, it has to be 10 men, 10 Jewish men, for them to recite this prayer. Part of the prayer reads this way. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. So there's this futuristic look when they say this prayer. The idea is that God has a kingdom 
They want his kingdom to come. They want God to rule in this kingdom. They want to come quickly. May it happen in your lifetime. Right? That's the idea that's behind it. This prayer is also inspired by uh, a passage in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, I mean 38, verse 23, where he says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So this Kaddish, this prayer, it actually dates back to around 500 B.C. So it's, it's very old. It goes all the way back to the, before the time of Christ. Again, based on the Old Testament. What's the idea? The idea is there's a kingdom. God has promised a kingdom. When this kingdom comes, right, the center of activity is going to be Israel, but it encompasses the entire world. What's the idea? That God's name will be known. Why does God want his name to be known? Well, it's a good thing if God's name is known. Right? In your family, you want God's name to be known. Right? If, if, they, if people know the name of God, that's not just an intellectual, oh yeah, God exists. But they, if they know God, that means your family honors God, respects God, believes in God. That means that when people in your family pass away, there is a very real expectation. You will see them again. Because heaven's a real place. People really do go there. There's a kingdom that's coming in the future. I'm going to be a part of that. My family's going to be a part of that. That's the idea behind this. All right, so God wants his name to be known. That's what he wanted Israel to do. Israel failed at that. What are we supposed to do as a church? What are we supposed to do as individual believers? Make the name of God known. How do we do that? We share the gospel of Christ with others. That's what we do. You know, there's all these different groups that are publishing Bibles in, in the languages of all these. Why are they doing that? So people can read about God. They want God's name to be known. The church spends millions of dollars, billions of dollars through the years training individuals to go to other countries. Why? So that God's name will be known. They're not doing it so that some denomination becomes great. The idea is so that God's name becomes great. What, we, what do we want to see? We want to see people come to know Christ. And we want to see churches formed in these other places. So that God's name will be, continue to be proclaimed in all these places. That's what, we're, that's what we're doing. That's what this is about. And that's what this prayer is about. When we ask for God's kingdom to come, this is not just some nice little pithy statement. There's, there's some substance to this. God has promised a kingdom. We're not using that idea because we live in a democracy. He's promised a kingdom. Right? I'm sure you're aware by now, America is not going to save the planet. This is not going to happen. There's no country, no government system is going to save the planet. This is not going to happen. We can't save it from, if you, if you believe in man-made climate change, it's not going to save it from that. It's not going to save us from war. It's not going to save us from any of that stuff. Right? It, it's going to be the kingdom of God that's going to do that. The consummation will occur, I believe, at the, at the time of the second coming of Jesus. When the promises of the Beatitudes that we covered a few months ago will be completely fulfilled and the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, reigns over the restored earth. Thirdly, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're asking for God to do is to bring his eternal plan to completion. The angels in heaven stand poised and ready to enact God's plan immediately and to perfectly fulfill his desires. This prayer is that God's desires will be fulfilled on earth with the same immediacy and to the same degree that they are in heaven. God's will on earth will fully and finally be accomplished when all human rebellion is crushed and unrepentant sinners are punished and God's people enjoy the fulfillment of all of God's promises to them. So when it comes to this statement, your will be done on earth that is in heaven, on the one hand, we can say this. In a sense, God's will is not done on earth as it is, as, it is, as it is in heaven. 
We do understand that God is sovereign and nothing happens outside of his permission. He does, obviously, he's permitting all these things to happen and they're all going to, in a certain direction. But actually what we know is it's all going in a, in a certain direction because he's going to accomplish his will. This is accomplishing his will and it's going to accomplish his will in the future. And what is that going to be? Well, it's going to be this, where his will will be done immediately and fully. He's not some slave owner who has some kind of agenda that's bad for us. He is a benevolent, loving, kind, eternal being. And his will for us in the future, when his will is done fully and immediately, life is good. Life will be good. He's told us what it's going to be like. How the earth will be so different. How there will be not only peace on earth in the sense of peace between peoples, we have a description of the millennial kingdom in the book of Isaiah where it talks about you know, a lamb and a lion lying down together. Unless that lion's been eating for several days in a row, that's just not going to happen today. All right? they're, he's gonna, they're going to eat. And he's, in fact, um, in, and I don't know if lions do this, I know that some animals do this, even when they're not hungry, they will kill. And they will, in fact, I know it sounds kind of bad. We had a pet snake in my house. My son did for a while. It was a python. And um, uh, what was interesting is there would be times, her name was Roxanne. She was actually very sweet. But um, if, as sweet as pythons get. But anyway, um, there would be times when, when she had just, you know when she would eat, she wouldn't need to eat for a month. Uh, but you put a live mouse in there after a couple of weeks, she'll kill it. She'll guard it. She's not eating it. But you can't get it. Why are they doing that? Oh, that's what animals do. So that's not normal. There's a day coming when that's going to happen. Right? There are certain poisonous, well, I, I, to me, all snakes are bad. But anyway, you know, there's certain poisonous snakes that when you get close to them, what do they do? Well, they're going to strike you. Right? There's a day coming when they, it, it, the Bible says, the child will sit next to basically the den of the asp. An asp is a, is a snake where basically it bites you, you're dead in less than three minutes. And play, no danger. That's what it means for the will of God to be done immediately and fully as it is in heaven. So in one sense, that aspect of God's will is not being done now, but that everything is moving in that direction because it's going to be done. We do know that due to God's providence, again, all that is done is, in one sense, again, God's power. We can use the phraseology that indicates that God's will, that, that God's will, that is God's will, and what he, what he does want is not ultimately happening now, but again, we, we want to think in terms of the fact that God states what he will accomplish. And what God will accomplish is sometimes stated in the past tense. When you read Romans, it says that we have been um, not only sanctified, we've been glorified. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Right? But, it's, but there's no way that cannot happen. Right? That's the will of God. So it is so guaranteed that God can speak of our glorification as if, as if it's already happened. Because nothing can prevent it, which is really cool. I mean, I, I love that. I'm so happy for that. All right? and so that's the idea here with this when it comes to the will of God. He's going to accomplish his goal. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to establish the eternal order. And peace will reign uninterrupted. Those promises he's made to us where, the, where one day he'll wipe away every tear. One day there'll be no more death. There'll be no more disease. That, that's really going to happen. That will never again. On the new earth, there will be no funeral parlors. There'll be no cemeteries because there is no death ever. It's difficult to imagine a world like that. 
But it's fun to imagine a world like that. And we look forward to it. So the first three requests then that Jesus is giving are made or are given here to help, to help us or to take us or enable us to focus on the bigger picture. To get us outside of ourselves and just our immediate needs or maybe our immediate wants. He gets us outside of ourselves, reminding us that we're part of a bigger universe, a bigger plan. That God is working a larger work than just our immediate circumstances and our private issues. God is concerned about what's happening to you in your life privately. Absolutely. But it's not just that. We know that God is not our private genie. If we don't think of the bigger picture, we can slip into that kind of thinking. Where the only time we pray is for ourselves, and our prayers are predominantly only for ourselves. And we don't make up for that by just praying for our neighbor. The idea is back up even more and look at the big plan. Right? The Bible, the, Jesus talked about the meek inheriting what? The earth. The whole thing. It's, it's going to belong to us. It's, it's difficult to grasp all of that. But G God, Jesus, he wants us to be part of all of that and to experience all of that for him, uh, for his namesake. Because, and again, the more that God is glorified, the better it is for us. You know, I used to teach my kids when they were, when they were little, little. We taught, you know, we'd go, take them on a walk, and i point out the flowers and all the colors, all the different colors that the flowers were. And we'd talk about that. So why do you think God made all these different colors? Well, first of all, because he can. Because it's really cool. And he's enabled us to be able to see all these colors. So we enjoy that. God is glorified by all these incredible flowers that we get to enjoy, and some of them have great smells. It's incredible. So we are enjoying that because we're, that we are enjoying God. When, when, you, when you enjoy a beautiful sunset, God did that. We have the ability to see that. Why is it so many different people look at a sunset and see and all, how beautiful? We're all struck in the same way. There are certain waterfalls when you see them. It's just magnificent to see those things. It's, 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 to hear the water falling and to see that is just it's sublime in that sense. In fact, there's one waterfall, I think, down in South, South America that is so high up when the water falls, I guess, I don't know if it's all the time or certain times, because of the wind, the water begins to fall and then it goes back up, right in the middle of the air. And I'd love to see that. I mean, it just, that's just got to be incredible. All right, so there's all these things. That's what that means. That's what this is about. And so this prayer in the beginning, we want to make sure that we do that. Make sure we do that in our own private prayer life. That, that, because we don't always do that. We, we, sometimes we kind of break out of ourselves and our community. We might pray for our government a little bit. We might pray for some of our leaders. Maybe a lot of times we're only motivated because life for us stinks because of them, you know, and that does happen. But we want to, we want to back up even more and, and think about this in a sense globally or universally and, and think about the Bible, what God says and what, what's in store in the future. Not only that we are a part of that, but that it is about God. So it's, it's, even though I get to enjoy that, it's not about me enjoying it. I want to, and I'm glad about that, but it is about his name being honored. It really is about him, and that's what this helps us to do. So our Father in heaven, our, this, this, being, this eternal being we have a relationship with, hallowed be your name. I want your name to be honored throughout the earth. Your kingdom come. I, I want your kingdom to come and be established on the planet. I want his kingdom to replace all the kingdoms that exist. Your will be done. I want his will to be done immediately and fully, just like it is in heaven. And I know we're moving to that. 
And I, and I want to see that, if I can, in my lifetime. Because it will be glorious and marvelous and wonderful in every way. This is what God is teaching us when he says, when you pray, pray this way. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us and again for the instructions of Jesus. I pray, Lord, you would help us to be able to see, uh, even to have a sense of the bigger picture, to recognize, Father, your greatness and how vast you are, and that your great and marvelous and wonderful promises are not just for us as individuals and not just for us and our families and not just for us and those in our church and not just for us in this country, but Lord, it is for all human beings through all time. And that you seek to, to bring people from all nations and tribes together to glorify your name. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us that perspective. That, Father, again, we may think your thoughts after you. Well, I know that if there are some here this morning that don't know Christ, it's very difficult, Father, to, to have a bigger view of things. Because we can be so caught up in the troubles in our life. We, we can get inside of our heads, so to speak, and all we think about or what occupies our thoughts is the pain we experience, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, or a combination. We think about our circumstances, and maybe there's a sense of hopelessness for the future. Uh, maybe there's just an unhappiness. A lot of things that just seem to go wrong. And so we get totally wrapped up only in our lives. And so we, we, we can't even imagine the bigger picture. And Lord, we know what those of us who believe, we understand that what needs to be done is we each need to be forgiven of our sin and this rebellion. and We need to be freed from the burden of sin and the burdens that sin brings with it. And one of the burdens that sin brings with it is this being wrapped up in just our own issues. I pray, Lord, you help each one who comes to Christ to experience the great freedom that comes from knowing you, to be able to break out of the small world in which we live in and to see the broader picture, to see the big picture, and that we are part of this vast world that you've created and all that is to come. We thank you, Father, that you can be trusted, that you are trustworthy, and that your will is done and will be done. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.